I think more than anything, we say that we did wrong. The mayor pledging to pay reparations for slavery, but how will it work? Who gets the money and who picks up the tab? Plus, after one setback after another, Missouri Medicaid expansion struck down by a judge. Is it really unconstitutional? And what happens now? Store up your spare change, Overland Park, green lighting, toll lanes, and move over the cow parade. Here comes the Parade of Hearts. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Horley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome, I'm Nick Haynes, and this is your show that connects the dots for you on the most impactful local stories of our week. Checking in with us on the big screen, 41 Action News anchor and reporter Dia Wall from the Tribune News Service, nationally syndicated columnist Mary Sanchez, keeping track of the news from behind a microphone at KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo, and from the pages of your Kansas City star, Dave Helling. You know, a growing number of Kansas Cityans recently got the Juneteenth holiday off as a paid vacation day. But is Kansas City about to mark the end of slavery in a larger and far more significant way? Mayor Quinton Lucas announcing plans to pay reparations to black residents. It is not taking already existing, let's say, tax dollars in Kansas City and just spend them on a whole bunch of folks. You know, it's a contentious idea that's been talked about for decades, but never acted upon, at least until now. Lucas is joining a group of 11 mayors who have signed a pledge to financially compensate African-Americans in their cities for the pain, loss of life and loss of opportunity brought about by slavery. So what would that look like and how will it actually work, dear? Do we know? No. Um, so before people start panicking... No, we have no idea how it would work. Right now, they want to have kind of a fact-finding committee, do some analysis, and see what it looks like. There have been other efforts to do something like this before, whether it was giving folks a break on property taxes or to invest in certain parts of the city that have suffered from disinvestment in the past. And so this isn't happening tomorrow, but it is something that I think a lot of mayors now want to voice a commitment to and see what they can do to get it done. If we want a sense of what this may look like, Dave, we can look 500 miles away in the city of Evanston in Illinois, just outside of Chicago. They actually did a, their own program in the last 12 months that they were giving $25,000 to help with things like uh, home repairs, for instance, or down payments on homes to black residents there. Is that what the mayor has in mind or something even bigger than that? Well, uh, if it's bigger than that, Nick, it'll have to be funded in some way other than just having the people of Kansas City pay for it. I mean, this becomes very expensive very quickly. And I think this is part of an effort really to nudge the federal government along. So he is right. We have no idea how this would work precisely. Uh, and we don't know really whether help for housing, for example, is the best way or just cash grants or jobs. I do think the mayor has said, and we need to keep this in mind, that this uh, program, however it shakes out, if it shakes out, uh, Nick, is not just based on reparations for slavery, but rather a long history of Jim Crow, of uh, housing discrimination, banking discrimination, poor education on the east side of Kansas City. I mean, you go back and look at Kansas City's history and the, the bifurcation uh, of this community along truce. Uh, continues to haunt the community. And so I think the idea of reparations would be, at least in some way, to try and bridge that gap and bring those, uh, the people who are on the other side of those tracks, 
closer to parity with everyone else in Kansas. By bringing this up now, though, Pete Mundo, does this create uh, another political divide in the city, particularly as this is happening right on the heels of the effort by the mayor to remove some funding from the police department and put it into community programs? Well, what it does, uh, Nick, similar to the uh, police department $42 million issue, is it's scant on details, as my colleagues have noted, which then allows people to draw their own conclusions, right? I mean, uh, there's been this big pushback uh, from, from the mayor's side on this, saying, well, people are misinterpreting what we want, whether it's on police funding or now reparations. Well, in fairness, uh, there were no details provided and no specific details provided on what this looks like. Now, I asked the mayor about it on my show Thursday morning, and he talked more about a community investment angle, which is different from true reparations. So if we're talking community investment, what does that look like? How much money? Where exactly? We still don't have any of that information. So, yes, it creates political divisiveness, but I think part of that is because the rollouts of these grand plans and grand ideas are limited in the details that they provide, which then allows people to draw their own conclusions. And what will that end up meaning then for Mayor Quinton Lucas? Will it end up helping or hurting him, Mary Sanchez? Well, it might hurt him. As I mean, as Pete is pointing out, people can fill in their own blanks. That's part of the problem with this. Reparations is an idea, a concept. There is no exact plan for how it should come about. The conversation is what's important because so often what we're missing is that true understanding that civil rights legislation did not end the impact. And it's not just about slavery, as Dave pointed out. Kansas City has a very unique and specific history that plays out along housing patterns, that plays out around education. And it's that lack of understanding and actual admittance to that that keeps holding certain communities back. The one thing I would want to add on that point is, yes, there are a few details, but that has to do with the fact that they are creating a fact-finding committee. They are going to go to the community to solicit ideas on how to move forward. But I'll leave you with this. We've been talking about reparations. How long in this country? There's never a good time, and it's never going to be politically advantageous. It's been one setback after another for that plan approved by voters to expand Medicaid in Missouri. But was it delivered a deadly body blow this week when a Missouri judge struck down the entire measure as unconstitutional because it didn't include a way to pay for the nearly 300,000 Missourians who are now eligible for health coverage? So what happens now, Dave Helling? Well, it goes to an appeals court. It may go directly to the uh, to the uh, Missouri Supreme Court. We're not sure. There is a bit of a deadline on July 1, Nick, so there will be some expedited consideration uh, of whether or not people who are eligible to sign up for expanded Medicaid can actually do so. I would like to point out, incidentally, and this will be of interest to your uh, viewers, uh, one of the reasons that uh, Judge Beatham ruled this unconstitutional is based on Kansas City versus Clay Chastain. <laughs> and you'll remember that he's been to the courts over and over and over. And what the Supreme Court had said at one point is you can't pass something by initiative that has an indirect cost. And they used the Chastain plan for light rail as the example. But Judge Beatham used it in his opinion yesterday about Medicaid. That's a 
interesting footnote to this story. I, I was looking, Pete Mundo, though, at other states who had passed Medicaid expansion. Did they have this funding mechanism in place? Utah in 2018? Well, they were increasing the state sales tax to do that. Oregon in 2018, a hike in taxes on health care insurance and tax on revenue on hospitals. So other places have put that funding mechanism in place. So are we heading to a point that this could potentially go on the ballot again and they put a funding mechanism in place? I'm not sure, Nick. I mean, talking to legislators down there as they got the special session started on Wednesday, uh, there seemed to be uh, quite a bit of confusion from them as what next steps will look like. You know, the fact that we have the focus on it in a special session at least might clear up some of these answers. This battle, by the way, is taking place in the Senate primarily in Jeff City, Nick. There uh, is a handful of very conservative senators, and they want to attach anti-contraception language to any bill that reauthorizes this tax. And there's just, there aren't the votes to do it or not to do it. That's where the hangup is. So my guess is they'll reach some agreement. The governor was really bluffing a little bit when he said, hey, I'm going to make all these cuts because he, he, he knew he had to call a special session. He did so. And I think at the deadline, they'll come up with some answer. We discussed it last week. Now the largest city in Johnson County has gone forward and approved what some have derisively called Lexus names. I'm talking about uh, expressing toll lanes on Overland Park's most congested stretch of roadway. You are going against the will of the people. Totally. It will be the biggest mistake of this council since the city was founded. The voters don't want tolls. And if you actually think they do, then put it to a vote on a ballot. Don't take a sample poll and then say the majority wants that. Yes, there's no shortage of people expressing their displeasure. But does this vote from the city council, Pete, signal you'd better start keeping your spare change because you're going to be paying anywhere from 30 cents to $1.75 every time you travel on 69 Highway? Yeah, Nick, uh, you know, I think this thing is, is going to end up happening here. It certainly looks like it after that 10-2 vote. And now, you know, KDOT's in the mix. And you got a timeline in place where you'd start construction in 2025 and it'd be in place by 2027. But it certainly is uh, is controversial. First off, by 2027, you see the growth down 69. You're going to need four lanes on both sides anyway. And it also opens up concerns about, hey, if you got the money, you pay the $3 a round trip. You don't think twice about it. But um, what does it mean if you can't? Uh, you know, the Lexus lane is a is a very fair thing to call it and um, certainly appears like it's not as popular as what you you would believe based on a 10-2 vote in the city council. It was critics, though, who dominated that hearing at the Overland Park City Council this week, dear Walt. But there are other people, of course, who have a very different point of view. And it is, of course, that the argument is being made, hey, you don't have to pay anything if you just want to be in the regular lanes. This is only for the new lane that's being created. Nothing motivates you to show up to a meeting and make your voice heard like anger, right? <laughs> so generally, when you go to these meetings, you have the most riled up and the most frustrated folks. Yes, in a sense, you are right. It's only going to be these express lanes. But the problem is traffic's backed up. So you create this system where, to Pete's point, the people who can't afford to pay $3 a day round trip, that's 60 bucks a month. This might be the time, though, you could be asking your employer, hey, begging your employer, can I work from home so you don't have to pay any fees? But Dave Helling, it was interesting to me looking at that vote. It was an almost unanimous vote, overwhelming support for it on the council. But Faris Farazati, one of the council members who's now running to replace Carl Gerlach as mayor of Overland Park, voted no on it. If he were to succeed Carl Gerlach in the mayor's race this year, is it possible he could reverse course on this? Well, not alone, of course, but uh, he might try to reverse course or 
give the city another chance to take a look at this as they get closer to construction, Nick, and there are other unanswered questions that could be raised. Um, but, but there is a predilection in this country for user fees. And we are at a turning point just quickly in how we finance these projects everywhere in America because gas taxes aren't generating the revenue they used to, cars get better mileage, electric cars are on the way. All of those questions are jumbled up and we're seeing how it played out in Overland Park. Mary, does this open the floodgates though, if Overland Park goes forward with this, as they have at the city council level, that other now communities in our metro will say that, that you know, let's do that too. And we'll start looking a little bit like New York and New Jersey here. Well, if other communities see that it works there, then perhaps if they see it implode in some way, whether it's politically or just the infrastructure itself, then no. But what this really calls for is just the broader conversation about Kansas City, about transportation, about how far out we build and how long that is sustainable. That's the other conversation that needs to be had as we go forward with all of this. Even though bars and restaurants are packed and few people are wearing masks inside stores, local health leaders are sending out a reminder that COVID still exists and some people are still dying from the virus here in the metro. And what do you make of the new health data compiled from the New York Times that finds Missouri is now leading the nation in new COVID cases? Missouri also ranks number one for the highest rate of hospitalizations from COVID. While the headlines look alarming, isn't it though the actual number of people hospitalized and dying of COVID in Missouri is still just a small fraction of where we were uh, back in December, for instance, around Christmas week, Pete. Yeah, Nick, uh, it, it, is a, it is a fraction when you compare it to where we've been. And we've certainly bended that curve many times over. And yes, things are getting back to normal. They basically are back to normal. You go around, you can go to a full uh, Kauffman Stadium if you want, and they can sell it out. The Chiefs are going to be full. Concerts are back. There's this general attitude of a vaccine is readily available to anybody in this country who wants it relatively easily. And, you know, those at this point who aren't interested in that are, are taking a risk depending on their age and their health considerations that I, I think the most of us uh, have to just let them live. You know, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I, I, I can't grasp the idea of, of pressuring somebody else to do something based on what my beliefs are if I feel like I've protected myself. I'm enjoying seeing your face during that, dear. Okay, hold on. Let's back it up. We're talking about an infectious disease that has affected hundreds of thousands, killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. Okay, so yes, vaccine readily available if you want it. The people who don't have every right, and that is their choice. But your choice affects me. Your choice affects the neighbor. So this is something where we have to get in a boat together and row. Well, I would respond to that just by saying, you know, I, I think about uh, the vaccine and its effectiveness and at 99% effectiveness, uh, you know, there's not overwhelming data that vaccinated people are getting infected and, and, and very ill from unvaccinated people carrying COVID. So until I see overwhelming evidence of that, I think that the point of the vaccines is that they work and is that we can go back to living our lives and those that participate or choose not to participate in them are making a, a, a decision that they're entitled to make that may not be in the best health interest, but it's not my job to look out for their but, health. But let me just throw that, I, if I can just jump in quickly, just with a personal story. My, my, I'm going to be a grandfather again in August. Uh, my, my daughter is going to give birth to a young girl she can't get a vaccine. She is exposed to COVID at birth. 
because she can't be vaccinated. And if there are unvaccinated people who could infect my granddaughter, that affects me and her. And if I can chime in, Nick, as someone who just had a newborn as well, there was not a single nurse, a single doctor who said anything to me or anything to my wife or I about the newborn and our two and a half year old and COVID and transmission and protecting them from it. Not a single thing was said. Did you get did you get the shot, Pete? What's that? Did you get the shot? No, I've not yet. And that is his right, Dave, right? Oh, oh no, no, not mandatory in this country. Uh, and then Pete and all of us have to decide the level of risk we want to expose our parents. But I will add to that and say that work has a requirement for us, and it will be on the agenda when that requirement does come. And that is their right as well as an employer. So, um, but that does not take away from my original point, instead of deflecting, which is that the doctors and the nurses said never said a word to me or my wife about the children and COVID and protection from it. Let's continue with the conversation about protection, but in a very different way, a metal fence erected around Congress following January siege at the Capitol may soon be coming down, but in Kansas, a new metal protective fence is going up to protect the governor. Workers are expected to complete a permanent metal fence around the governor's mansion in Topeka by the end of the week. Previously, Cedar Crest had a gate restricting vehicles from entering, but only a wooden fence encircling the property. Was there any specific threat against the governor? Governor Dave? Not that we're aware of, although all public officials will tell you that from time to time they get threats that they consider credible. Uh, and my guess is that uh, this has been on the, the uh, blackboard for some time because we just live in that kind of world and, and uh, providing security for the governor is an important thing. Now, uh, as I pointed out on Twitter last week, the governor of the state of Missouri has a metal fence around his residence down in Jefferson City. Other governors do, too. This doesn't seem as shocking to me as it might to other people. The idea that you can just walk up and knock on the door of the governor is probably not something we can enjoy in 2020. But it certainly raised eyebrows, though, Mary, um, among Republican lawmakers who are leading the legislature in Topeka, who said this $217,000 project had some irony with it in light of a Democratic opposition to President Trump's decision to build a fence uh, on the border with Mexico. Does it send a contradictory message? No, not at all. It's contradictory to try and even align those two issues. You're talking about federal border protection, and there, there are places that a actual wall at the our almost 2,000-mile-long border actually works, and there's many other places where it doesn't. I mean, that's just, it, it's ridiculous. We have so many other ways to manage security at our border spaces to even think that Putting a bit of a metal fencing around a governor's mansion has anything to do with the same thing is ridiculous. A contradiction, Pete? Is there a little bit of a hypocrisy around it? Yeah, sure. But ultimately, do I think the governor made the call on this personally? No. Does it make for good social media fodder? Absolutely. So how much protection do our politicians need? How much protection do our athletes need? Uh, this week, Chief's defensive end Frank Clark is arrested in California after police discover an Uzi submachine gun in his bag. Clark claims it was his bodyguards. Are our local athletes at that much risk, dear Wall? Oh, why would you come to me on this? <laughs> Here's the deal. One, brother, you rolling in a Lambo truck with a Uzi and a duffel bag that's unzipped. So let's just unpack this. One, why didn't you zip up the bag? Boom. 
number one. Number two, a Lambo truck is a bit flashy, you know, not saying you can't roll it how you want to roll. And my question is, where was the bodyguard? I don't know. I mean, this is one of those weird instances where we're going to have to see it play out. Um, right up to training camp, the league's probably going to have some discipline involved here, which is bad news for Chiefs Kingdom, who won him on the field. We're talking about discipline. The Star Editorial Board claims that this sends such a terrible message in a city plagued by uh, gun violence that if he's convicted, the Chiefs should release him from the team. Really, Dave? Yes, I mean, that was our argument, that the message sent by a leading figure in the community that it's okay to carry a submachine gun in the back of your car is disqualifying uh, for, for playing professional football. I mean, I think the discipline probably won't reach that level. But, Nick, we, we, we've got a huge murder problem in this community. And someone can, uh, you know, uh, take a look at that story and say, in essence, hey, if a Chiefs player can carry a submachine gun, why can't I? Uh, it's just the wrong thing for a team, by the way, that has been plagued by gun violence directly as well. So, yeah, I, I, I you know, we think that uh, this is a serious uh, infraction. We had a British athlete this week, Mary Sanchez, that also had a fall for grace in a, in a different kind. But there was a British uh, media commentator who said of that, um, the job of professional athletes on our sports teams is a to play a decent team, not to audition to become future saints. Do we really, as a public, have an expectation that these individuals who are playing for the Chiefs and the Royals are going to be these morally scrupulous role models off the field? Well, I think it depends on who you ask that question of. I wish that all professional athletes would hold that stature and that stage well and perform both on the field and also within their personal lives as role models, but they're human beings. I will say also that the NFL has both struggled and actually really worked a lot with young players because they know that so many people are suddenly, and Clark is a good example, suddenly have such massive wealth and that draws a lot of hanger-ons. Perhaps that might have been part of who this bodyguard team was. They work with these young men to manage this new space that this wealth and fame gives them. He's a young man. I hope that he can recover from this both professionally, legally, in every way, shape, or form. If convicted, should he be terminated, Pete? No, no. He's probably looking at a, a four-game suspension from the NFL, two on the low end, six on the high end. Uh, he'll be back by October. He'll be sacking quarterbacks by mid-October, and Chiefs fans will cheer him on, and nobody will, will remember this by Halloween. If you've lived here a while, you must remember the Cow Parade, a massive public art project that saw local artists painting hundreds of fiberglass cows around the metro. It even spawned its own book. Now, 19 years later, get ready for the Parade of Hearts with the KC Heart now becoming an iconic symbol of the city. Business and civic groups are banding together on a new community project that would see local artists splash paint on up to 200 gigantic fiberglass hearts. Now, I remember the Cal Parade 19 years ago, and a number of prominent artists refused to participate, saying it wasn't original. We were simply borrowing a project that was going on in tons of other cities. Is this heart idea really unique, Mary? It's not unique in that, yes, these types of um, push-outs on public projects have happened before. I do think the hearts actually fit more with our location in terms of the heart of America. So perhaps there's more that can be done with this in, in an artistic way. And coming out of a pandemic, 
What's better than a heart? It would all be released in March of next year, dear Wall, and the money going to charity. So there, even if you don't believe it's too original, uh, it does go to a good cause. Yes, I think it's a great idea. Um, to Mary's point, it's been a rough 15 to 18 months across this country and in this community. And so anything that can bring people together to rally around something fun, uplifting, I say do it. Why not? When you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every intriguing local story making the headlines. What was the story we missed? Groundbreaking this week on the new Buck O'Neill Bridge. You can start driving on it in 2024. A popular metro area children's attraction won't be reopening. Paradise Park has been bought by the Lee Summit School District. It'll become an early education center. Swimming pools now open all across the metro, but there's one place you can't swim. In Kansas City, Kansas, there are protests over a decision by the city not to open its only public swimming pool. They're blaming a shortage of lifeguards. Area businesses still struggling to find workers. Nebraska Furniture Mart now hiking its minimum wage to more than $18 an hour. And after being shut down for more than a year, Starlight Theater makes its big return this week. They're filling every seat and no masks are required. It's just not Starlight without the folks. It's, it's, it's the people that make this place. Pete Mundo, did you pick one of those stories or something completely different? Nebraska Furniture Mart, 18 bucks an hour, Nick. Radio might have to go soon if they keep raising these things. I'll tell you what, we talk a lot about access to opportunity. Yes, it's a real thing, but with 9 million jobs available and wages continuing to rise the lowest ends, now's the time uh, to get in on these entry-level jobs. They are looking for workers. That's a good thing, and people should be taking advantage of it. Missouri ended the extra 300 bucks a week of unemployment. Kansas did not. Let's see how that impacts the metro. Mary Sanchez. I would say Cat's Drugstore. There's a lot of historical value there that at least needs to be better understood. Dia Wool. I think I'm going to have to take the Buck O'Neill Bridge. And here's why. We've been talking about that bridge the entire time I have been in Kansas City. Um, I know that our transit community, the cycling community, everybody had to come together. And so I am happy to see this moving forward because it is a jumble, okay? We need better access to highways across the city down there, especially in that area. So I'm excited for it. Dave Helling. Just quickly, the uh, Buck O'Neill Bridge, the old one, used to be a toll bridge. You had to throw a dime or a quarter into a bucket to get across it. So... That has some relevance to our earlier discussion. But no, my uh, story of the week is Kansas City has filed its response to the police board lawsuit over the $42 million. Among other things, the city says you can't require City Hall to pass a budget in March and then not touch it for another year as the police board wants. They say, look, we go in all the time and make adjustments for and against the police budget, we should be allowed to do so here. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed. Our thanks to Dia Wall from 41 Action News, Dave Helling of your Kansas City Star from the Tribune News Service, Mary Sanchez, and 6 to 10 weekday mornings on KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo. And I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Be well, keep calm, and carry on. 